Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's asking you for a drink, you'd have asked, and I'd have given you some living water. Those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever been, like, really, really thirsty? Anybody been thirsty? Well, we are in New York, and there's a lot of water around. We're lucky to live in a place where cool drinking water isn't that much of a problem. In fact, New York City water, in particular, is legendary. Who doesn't? That doesn't keep us from rushing out to grab Poland Spring or Evian or Fiji or anything that we can spend money on, but the free stuff is a beautiful thing. We're rarely thirsty, unless we're stupid. A few years ago, my son Harry and I decided to walk across the Alps from Germany to Austria. It seemed like a good idea. It took us a week. And we had a lot of good adventures. But one day we were staying in a hut way up in the Austrian Alps, and we decided to climb one. One Alp, that is. So Spitze is an 800-foot mountain. It's not too short, not too tall, just about right in a golden, Goldilocksian way. And so I grabbed my water bottle, and we started climbing. It was still cool, but it was sunny, and the path was pretty steep. And we got about halfway up, and I stopped for a drink, and Harry said, can I have some of that? I said, where's your water bottle? He said, I didn't want to carry it. (laughs) I was torn between my parental instinct and my uh, that's your problem instinct, equally strong. But I handed my water bottle to Harry, and he drank most of it. Suffice it to say, by the time we climbed to the top of Sundigerspitze, we were both thirsty, really thirsty, dangerously thirsty in the way Lee described, muscle cramps and fever and bad breath, thirsty. It was sunny and it was in the middle of the day and we were thirsty. That was the situation that Jesus finds himself in that day in the mountains of Samaria. Things had gotten hot for him back in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees were on his back. So Jesus is on his way back up north to Galilee, where he comes from. But John says that he cuts through Samaria, that he has to cut through Samaria. Of course, he could have gone around Samaria. He could have traveled along the coast. But there are two reasons there are two reasons to go around and one is that Samaritans were not friendly with the Jews and vice versa. So that's a good reason to go around Samaria and the second is that Samaria is basically a bunch of mountains. Not exactly the Alps, but mountains. But going through Samaria is a shortcut, and he's not so worried about the mountains or about the Samaritans. So that's why we find Jesus that day in the middle of the day, sitting beside Jacob's well, feeling thirsty. But he's got a problem. Like Harry, he has forgotten his water bottle, his water bucket, rather, and Jacob's well is deep, and he's thirsty 
very thirsty, and the disciples have all disappeared. They've gone off to look for food. Along comes our friend, the Samaritan woman. And the two of them meet cute. It reminds me of some, like, 80s rom-com, like when Harry met Sally, or you've got mail, or, you know, name your favorite 80s rom-com that you hate. Two details to notice about their interaction. And I'm going to point them out, not because they make the story more interesting, which they do, but because they're significant. They're significant for the story, but more importantly, they're significant, I think, for us. They matter to me. I think they'll matter to all of us. First thing to notice, Jesus initiates the whole thing. And second thing to notice, it's Jesus who's thirsty and not the woman. Let's talk about those things. Jesus initiates their conversation. Jesus initiates their relationship. Now, a lot of times in the Gospels, you'll remember or notice or think that it's people who come up to Jesus, who find Jesus, bug Jesus, start things up with Jesus. And that's surely true in John's Gospel. People hear about him, they know about him, they seek him out. They're looking for Jesus. And they find him, and they talk to him, they bug him, they ask him for stuff. But that's when he's in his home country, among his own people. And here, it's different. Here he's the foreigner. He's the alien. He's the one with the accent. Here he's the ethnically suspect, the religiously suspect, the sexually suspect person. This woman has come to the well in the middle of the day expecting to be alone because who's going to come to fetch water in the middle of the day? And she finds this man, this foreigner, this Jew, and he's just sitting there looking suspicious. She sees he's Jewish. She knows that he prays differently. She knows that he thinks differently about God than she does. And so it's Jesus who makes the first move. It's Jesus who speaks first, who initiates the whole thing. Jesus makes the first opening gambit, crosses the boundary, crosses the line. It's Jesus who breaks the rules. But you know Jesus, he's not that big on rules. He's not that big on the rules that don't matter anyway. He's not that big on the rules that don't help people. He's not that big on the rules that separate people, that keep people divided. I'm personally finding it harder and harder to cross those kinds of lines. I've got some friends and some colleagues who I respect, but who think very differently from me about everything. I know Christians who think so differently than I do about God and the Bible that they'd probably say I'm not Christian. And to tell you the truth, the unredeemed part of me would probably say that they're not Christian too. And it's just easier to talk with you all who agree with me about everything. And Lord knows I've got a few relatives who I love dearly but who thinks so differently than I do about politics and 
stuff like that. And I would love to sit down and talk to them and have a real conversation with them about what's going on. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to even start that. That's another way that you know that I'm not Jesus. Jesus has no problem crossing lines, breaking boundaries. He doesn't have a problem with that. And so he starts this conversation. Not that it's such a great opening line. Give me a drink. (laughs) I'm sure he really says, give me a drink, please. Don't you think? Give me a drink, please. But often in my life, I found that to be true. I found that Jesus has that opening line, that, that opening word, that first line. I, I would love to say that I pray so often that I just don't know who starts the conversation between us. But that's really not true. What I find is that I often, often run into a situation or I'm in the middle of a conversation and somehow I thought I knew who had come up to me on the street or on the subway or here in church and I'm annoyed or I'm impatient about it and then I realize that I'm talking to Jesus and not who I thought I was talking to. Sometimes it's amusing to my family, amusing in that not amusing kind of way. They say that people come up to me all the time wherever I am to ask for things and I explain that I give off this aura of compassion of somebody who's just so easy to talk to, of somebody who's just so very safe, who's so very open, and they say, "Um, you just look like a sucker. And I say, that's the same thing. And Jesus does it to the Samaritan woman. Give me a drink. Because the thing is, The takeaway is, Jesus needs us. Jesus needs her. That's not a big surprise that he needs her. She shows up, bucket or jug or something in hand, and he needs her to help him out. Since, as she points out, he doesn't have one. Because it's Jesus, that becomes the start of a beautiful relationship, of a beautiful friendship. I have a second point, and it relates to the first. I'm going to make it, and then I'm going to sit down. In a, in a preaching class I took once, my professor had debunked the classic three-point sermon, and so somebody asked him, how many points should a sermon have? And he said, well, at least one. I have two. And my second point is this. It's Jesus who is thirsty. I want to say that again. It's Jesus who is thirsty, not the woman. And I think he's still thirsty. He's still thirsty. And it's okay if we're thirsty. It's okay when we're thirsty. That we come to the waters again and again. We come to the Spirit. We come to church. We come to pray. We read the Bible. And we're still thirsty. And that's okay. I find myself so thirsty in these dry times and I have to keep telling me, that's okay. It's okay. It's actually good to be thirsty because when you're thirsty is when you remember to go to the waters. I'm thirsty for some hope. 
I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty for something that tells me that everything's going to be okay. And I'm thirsty for, for truth, for things I can count on, things I can believe, something I, I can know is what is. At this time when truth seems so undervalued, so disparaged and denigrated and ignored, I'm thirsty for real relationships that go beyond a kind of a surfacey thing. I'm thirsty for, for faith that leads me to be more patient and more compassionate and less cynical. And if you're thirsty for any one of those, I have a suggestion for you. Find the one who offers us a little bit of living water and go to that one and drink deeply of that living water, of that river of life. Let's go to that one in prayer. Christ, you ask us, you tell us, you beseech us, if you knew who I am, you would come to me and ask me and talk to me and say, Give me some living water. Help us remember. Help us know that you are that source of living water when we forget, when we can't believe it, when we can't think it, when we don't even know what we need. Bring our thirsty souls to your well to drink deeply from your living water. Amen. Amen.